with Mr. David Hoffman, author of Billion Dollar Spy, as well as Dead Hand. Billion Dollar Spy is incredible. But before I jump into it, please introduce yourself for everybody listening. Um, this is David Hoffman, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming on, man. Um, so Billion Dollar Spy, I will say, one of one of the sexiest beginnings to a book ever with the pop-up, the cake pop-up, that immediately pulled me in. And for everyone listening, what it is is it's a way to lose a tail in a, or you know, to remove an identity in the Soviet Union when the CIA knew they were being trailed. They had, for instance, what you say in the book is uh, one of the wives of one of the guys holding a, a cake and they would make a hard turn and they knew they had about three seconds before the Soviet or the KGB tail would turn around too. And uh, what they would do is the guy would change, jump out, walk around, and he would now just look like an old man. And then they would reach ahead, pull a lever in the cake, and the silhouette of a person would pop up, and they could even move a little thing around, kind of like Home Alone, so it looked like the guy was talking. Man, one of the best hooks I've ever read to a book, where I instantly I started, and I was like, okay, okay. You know, Tommy, one of the things about that, whole thing is that the CIA officers on the street often worried that the KGB was just surrounding them everywhere. You know, you can imagine the KGB could have put, you know, 500 people on the streets of Moscow at any time with a snap of a finger. Uh, CIA just had a couple handful of uh, officers on the street doing their work. So they feared for a long time that they were, you know, surrounded and there could be these saturation teams of KGB officers just searching for them anywhere. And so they uh, were very, I think, careful about uh, what they did. But they realized after a while that the KGB teams that followed them in cars never really pulled up alongside. You know, they were always in the back, a couple lengths behind. It was something that they they had a secret way to tell when the KGB officers were following them because the KGB garage had these brushes that cleaned the cars and they left a triangle on the front where it was uncleaned, right? Because the brushes came down like that. So they could look, if you saw like a little dirt triangle on the front of the car, it might be from the KGB garage. And with that little clue, they could keep an eye on who was behind them. But the thing is that they realized that when you're following from behind, you really only have two-dimensional uh, acuity. And so by making this pop-up sort of fake person sitting in the front seat, they could fool them. Um, they had tried using a, a dummy that was full uh, airblown kind of a thing, and it kept leaking air. But when they realized they only needed a two-dimensional one, it became a lot easier. And of course, the pop-up was hidden in this birthday cake, which was fake. So when they set out on the drive, you know, going to a birthday party, which they faked, um, KGB just said, oh, it's a couple of embassy people going to a birthday party. So when the pop-up went up and the officer, you know, jumped out of the car like you described, um, they had a couple of advantages. The first being that the KGB didn't have a, a clue since they were a couple of cars behind and the turn. Yeah. And when the CIA made the turn, you know, they didn't put on the brake lights. It was a kind of a really quick thing. You had to get out of that car. And the officer on the street then is wearing a very specific kind of mask. He didn't only change his clothes, Tommy. He put on okay. a very carefully created uh, animated mask that made him look like an old man. And he kind of hunched over. And so when the KGB finally caught up and went whipping by, you know, there was just an old man on the street there. He had been in the car. It's, it's, it's real life what you see in the movie, right? I was just watching a clip of one of the Mission Impossible movies last. I'm too ADD to watch a full movie, so I love watching little clips on YouTube. But it's right. You have, like, Tom Cruise, and he's, you know, he's dressed as, like, um, the, for whatever reason, they're outside the Vatican. He's dressed, he's, a, you know, he's, cutting the bushes and, you know, looks both ways. And he like shoots up a wire, goes over the top of the, the fence, comes down and you see him kind of land and he does like a little roll and kind of pulls one thing. And whoosh, all of a sudden he's dressed as a friar. Yeah. And it's, it, it seems so like, oh, well, that's a movie. But no, you're right. I was mixing that up with something else. But you're right. Put on the prosthetic. You turn the corner and you're right. I forgot about that. That's probably the best part. Don't use the brake light. Don't give them any heads up. And they know 
They know through trial and error. They know they've got about, what, two, three seconds before the, their car makes the turn. So you use the e-brake, make the turn, and then one, two, three, get out, roll, stand up, you know, kind of walk slowly, shuffle, boop, head comes up. You have the thing moving around. All the KGB knows is now they just took a turn. It's, yeah, they still think they're behind them. It's And they follow them all the way to the birthday party. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's it's the stuff that you but what i love about it is it's like it's these tiny little like nuances right where it's like the tip of the tip of the spear like sure you have the marching armies and they're going to go clash head to head right and then you have spec ops and you have delta force and they're going in and they're doing the more surgical strikes what i love about this though is this isn't the tip of the spear this is the glint on the tip of the spear they're doing all of this right they're kind of keeping their secrecy they're building their sources and they're slowly getting information about the next generation of fighter jet and what can we do ahead of time to save ourselves per your book, Billion Dollar Spy, which for everyone listening is on Audible. Absolutely incredible book. And there's a good paperback out too. Here's what oh, it there like. we go. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's good paperback. Beautiful. So. It's, it's, and as an audiobook connoisseur, it's fantastic. Great. I mean, let me just respond to something you just said though. Oh, you sure. Know? Yeah. Um, I think people uh, are getting beyond the Cold War now, years beyond it. But the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was kind of an unusual war because it never became hot. We had a lot of buildup. We had a lot of threat. We had, you know, nuclear uh, destruction looming over us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal. There was a lot of tension. It affected a whole generation of people, including myself, who lived under it. But the interesting thing is that the actual conflict never became a shooting war. It became a global competition. Uh, It was both cultural, political, and economic. It, It spanned every continent, but it never became shooting. We oftentimes feared it would. We were some several times on the edge of, of it becoming that. But the thing is that the CIA and the KGB were part of this shadow war, right? They were, uh, in the back alleys and you talk about some other aspects of it but what i when i think of what these guys are doing they were carrying out the same kind of effort to defend american values and defend the things that the united states stood for in this great confrontation but unlike the others like say the the uh test pilots and you know rocket designers and everybody else these guys of the cia were working almost always in the back alleys. And that required a certain amount of cunning and creativity and theatricality and caution um, to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. It it really, it's, it's the most evolved, it's the most evolved fight. And that's what I love about it is, you know, it's, it's going in and getting this information and this information is going back. So we know what the next weapon system is going to be built with. And so you have all these things, which, kind of seem more like the, the lower aspects of right it's like it's like d-day or okinawa like those are all intense but it's versus like having a spy inside of you know norse hydro where we know that hit the nazis were making heavy water and if they get an a-bomb we're done for and it's these little tiny quiet things that on the surface they're not as uh they're not as climat not to not to you know make it sound any less worse but not as perhaps climactic as as a d-day or as an or as a dropping of the nuclear bomb or you know whatever battle of the bulge but it's much more quiet you know some soldiers going in but even before the soldiers go in and do this spec ops thing it's the intel how do we know it's there how do we know it? So let me tell you a little yeah. bit about this yeah you know, uh, the title of the book, of Billion Dollar Spy, it's about one man and one operation. And I'll tell you a little bit about the man. Please do. Then we can talk about the operation, right? But, uh, in World War II, the uh, Nazis bombed Moscow. And uh, they this bombing in 1941 was, you know, Moscow was pretty much a city built out of wood at the time. And the bomb set off a lot of big fires even in the first night, 100 people were killed, and the Luftwaffe bombers um, kept coming, and the Soviets really didn't have any defense. Um, you know, they had big searchlights, they had hundreds of them, 
and had a very crude kind of rudimentary radar. But even with the early warnings that they had, the, uh, the bombers got through. And uh, the people of Moscow ran for their lives. What was the safest place in the city? It was the subway. They ran, you know, down into the subway stations like they were bomb shelters. And a young 14-year-old kid lived in Moscow. Then his name was Adolf Tolkachev. And this situation of Moscow under siege by the Germans, bombs uh, causing enormous fires, burning up the city and people running into the subway, profoundly changed his life. And one of the outcomes of the first waves of bombings was that Stalin and uh, what was left of the military command that he hadn't already destroyed, uh, realized that they had very weak radar and they needed to build up a much stronger system of radar. It was a new technology in the 30s and the Soviet Union was way behind. Their radar was primitive. So Tolkachev was sent to a high school and later to a university to study electronics and primarily to, to be an expert on radar. And that's how that system worked. You know, you didn't have your choice uh, of what to do. He was assigned, but he was good at it. And so his entire education was building radar. When the war ended and, you know, the Soviet Union began to sort of rebuild from the rubble in Moscow, uh, times were a little bit better. And he came back from university. He had studied at Kharkiv, which was a big electronics school um, in what's now Ukraine. And uh, he was assigned to one of the two big institutes to make military radar. And it was actually in an old facility right smack in the middle of Moscow. Um, you know, it looked like any other, it was sort of part pre-revolutionary buildings with bricks and it looked very old and some parts were a little newer, but there under these giant sort of draftsman-like rooms and lights, they began to design the radars that would guide and protect the Soviet Union in the years after, as the Cold War was just beginning. So he uh, was single then, and you know he was a young man, and he met a young woman in the antenna department. And her name uh, was Natasha Kuzmin. Natasha had had a really, really rough life. Uh, back before the war, in a period that we call the Great Terror, mm -hmm when Stalin was uh, pursuing anybody perceived to be an enemy of the state. Um, both of her parents were, both of them, party members, both of them were accused of subversion. Totally made up claim. Her father had been an editor of a weekly newspaper for the light industry, and her mother worked in the uh, Ministry of Forestry and Timber, um, partly because her, her father had been an uh, entrepreneur in that business. But they were both communists, and they were accused of subversion. Um, the mother, Natasha's mother, was accused primarily because she made one trip out of the Soviet Union to Europe to visit her father, who was then in Europe. And that just going out of the country once was considered a disloyal thing. So... One night, there's a knock on the door. It's late at night. Um, mother was seized by the then NKVD, the secret police, and taken away, and, and very soon after that, executed. Father was also uh, scared to death by what happened. He hid in a friend's closet for a couple of days. He tried to evade the KGB. They found him. And he was sent off to the Gulag for eight years. Well, when this happened, Natasha was two years old. So you can imagine in the middle of the Great Terror, she's two years old, she loses her parents. And, you know, she was raised in a state orphanage. She grew up to be a young woman, got a job in this institute of radar where Tolkachev was working. They met, um, they married. But, you know, Tolkachev shared a lot of the bitterness that Natasha had about what had happened to her parents. And in the 50s, the gulags emptied out and her father was still alive. And he came to Moscow and was reunited with her. And now she's a young woman, right? He hasn't seen her for a long time. I think probably it was 18 years they were apart. And uh, 
you know, she's extremely bitter and life has been full of hardship and the country's just been through a world war. And um, father uh, tells her everything that happened, what had happened to her mother, um, what happened to him. And then he died of brain cancer, like within the year. So she had all this sort of terrible experience in her. And Adolf Tokachev shared that. I mean, you know, they were young. They had a pretty nice apartment in Moscow because he was moving up as a radar designer. And that was something that the system cared about. And in the Soviet system, you know, accomplishing the military industrial goals of the system was a big deal, right? So he got this apartment and she worked in the same institute. They could walk to work. Um, And... 1957 came Sputnik. Uh-huh. Things were looking up in the late 50s. Adolf and <laughs> Natasha uh, were very, very hopeful, I think, that the horrible experiences of the 30s and 40s were behind them and that the 50, late 50s brought a period that was known as the thaw. And during the thaw, uh, there was a slight relaxation in uh, freedom of artistic expression. You know, the Khrushchev thaw was a period where a lot of people actually had some hopes that sure. things would improve, that the terrible sacrifices were over. And I think uh, both Adolf and Natasha had this feeling. They had one child, um, Oleg, who was born in 65. And maybe things were getting better, uh, not in terms of standard of living, but Certainly the system was a little bit less oppressive. Stalin had died in 53. But of course, then Khrushchev was thrown out in 64. Uh, things that began to get kind of crummy again. The Soviet system entered a period of uh, stagnation. And, you know, this period of stagnation. So in this period of the thaw, uh, hopes were raised. They had a child. They lived, uh, they were carrying out their professions that, you know, Stalin was dead. Um, maybe things would change. But by the mid-60s, uh, Tolkachev began to see that he was wrong and that the system wasn't really changing for the better. And uh, this certainly came really home to roost to him, first of all, by the shortages and the stagnation that he saw all around him. The Soviet system was beginning to to die. I mean, people were in line for bread and for shoes. And really, in August of 1968, the Warsaw Pact and Soviet forces uh, crushed the Prague Spring. Mm-hmm. The idea of socialism with a human face uh, in Prague. And that was a, a real turning point for Tolkachev. He realized that the, the old system, the Stalinist system, was still alive. Yeah. And uh, he really became more and more disenchanted. So at this point, he's disenchanted with history because of what had happened to Natasha's parents. He's disenchanted with the present because his hopes for the thaw has sort of been crushed. But he didn't really know what to do about it. I mean, at one point he thought maybe he'd print up some flyers and go out and put them in people's mailboxes. And, of course, he realized that if he did that, then he would probably be arrested yeah. right away. And right? dead real quick. Yeah, you wouldn't change anything that way. But, you know, Tonkachov was a electronics guy, right? So he had an old shortwave radio. Um, he lived on the ninth floor of this building, a very prestigious building. And he put the radio on the windowsill, and uh, periodically he could catch broadcasts from Voice of America and uh, Germany and a few other shortwave things. And uh, Voice of America was not jammed all the time. It, uh, you know. So one day he was listening to the news on uh, Voice of America, and he heard an extraordinary story, one that really changed everything. And in, in this particular broadcast, it was announced that a Soviet fighter pilot who had been flying in the Far East had flown his plane right in yeah. the middle of an exercise down to the deck, practically on the surface, I mean, 100 feet from the surface, flown it right out of the Soviet Union, flown it all the way to a Japanese civilian airfield, and landed that plane right while the other planes were taking off on the Japanese civilian airfield. He skidded to a stop, skidded off the runway, actually. Um, He was completely out of gas. There wasn't an ounce of gas left in that thing. He popped the canopy and handed the first person he saw a note that said he wanted to defect. 
just in I've had for that story, which is insane. By the way, I think I did enable screen sharing. Okay. So um, when I get to the next okay. thing to show you, I will. Okay. So the uh, Victor Belenka was the name of this fighter pilot, and he defected and he delivered to the West um, this beautiful brand new MiG that he was flying. And this MiG was in particular was an interceptor. And at the time, we thought this particular model was the fastest fighter plane in the world. Um, there are only reports about how fast it could go. No one had ever seen one. But now the United States Air Force sent an exploitation team to the Japanese airfield. They put up some curtains around the sucker. They took it into a hangar and they took it apart down to the rivets. Yeah. So we realized that it wasn't a fighter. It was an interceptor. Um, it could go flat fast, but it was basically just a straight line interceptor, you know, shoot up into the high altitudes to, uh, to confront any uh, bombers that were coming, but it wasn't very maneuverable. Yeah. We learned a lot of intelligence. So Tolkachev's listening to this on the VOA, right? And by the way, Belenko, I think in that broadcast it was reported that Belenko wanted a million dollars and to be resettled in the United States, both of which he got. Yeah. So uh, Tokachev's thinking, man, I am so pissed off at these guys. <laughs> what can I do? Well, he, he was not a pilot, but remember, he was making radars. In fact, the radar on that plane he had designed, mm -hmm. and he was designing radars for these planes. So he knew a lot about aviation, and the building he lived in was devoted to the aviation industry and the stars like him who were helping the Soviet Union build a very powerful air force. So he gave a lot of thought to exactly what he could do. He couldn't really defect. He didn't want to do to his son what had happened with Natasha, right? He didn't want his son to grow up in a, and orphan. So he came up with a plan that will lead to the next part of our story. Um, Dolkachov's uh, place where he lived, and I'm going to show this to you just in a second here, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to get to the slide and I'm going to show you this. So just stand by here for one second. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seeing the other. Let's see if we can make this work, okay? Okay. Okay, just a PowerPoint. Beautiful. Well, can you see the slide? Yes, sir. Um, do I need to make it bigger? Oh, no, 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 it's perfect. Okay, so if you take a look at this, Tolkachev's building is that spire in the background. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the American embassy in the foreground, the yellow building, right? So Tolkachev was a jogger. And three times a week, when the weather permitting, in the morning, he would jog in a circuitous route about a mile and a half that would take him right down in front of that embassy building. And, of course, the guards would look out and say, oh, here comes that sort of chunky, short little guy every time. You know, it was such a routine they didn't pay him any attention. But Tolkachev was paying very close attention because when he jogged by the building, he would look at the license plates of the cars. All the American diplomat cars had a special license plate that would identify them as American diplomats. Tolkachev noticed along that street, where did they park their cars um, and which ones belonged to the Americans. So this uh, bit of information gave him an idea uh, about what he was going to do next. He wrote a note, he said, without signing his name, that he was an engineer and he would like to cooperate with the Americans and provide them information. Um, he also memorized three different English sentences. He didn't have uh, really great English at the time. And he went out there uh, on another couple runs to make sure he had identified which cars. And then he went to a little gas station that was right near those two buildings. In those days, the Americans and other diplomats could only buy gas at this one station. It was especially for foreigners. You use coupons to buy the gas. And so he knew that uh, pretty soon somebody's going to pull up there mm -hmm. with one of those special license plates. So it was January 1977. 
January 12th, about 6 p.m. It's already dark in Moscow um, and probably pretty damn cold. And Tokachev staked out the gas station waiting for a car to come by, right? And uh, as he's there, he sees one. And remember, he's got this little package. It's taped up, a lot of cellophane tape. It's kind of thick because he's made a couple of layers of things. And uh, I'm going to show you then this story. I'm going to share this. He pulls up. There it is. To this gas station. And uh, you can see there Mm -hmm. the station wagon. The American car pulls up. And this guy, Robert Fulton, can you see him there? Yes, sir. He's He's driving that car. Tolkachev goes up to him and says the first sentence that he memorized. Are you an American? And the guy says, yes. And then Tolkachev says, um, I have something for you. And he, can you talk? And the guy says, no, I can't really talk to you right now. I mean, this happened all the time. Yeah. But uh, the guy said, no, no. And Tolkachev said, well, excuse me. He put the package on the front seat and turned on his heel and walked away. Well, he didn't know it. But the guy he had just talked to, Mr. Fulton, was the CIA station chief in Moscow. Fulton went right back to the CIA station, which was located in that embassy building I showed you before, and sent a cable to headquarters about what had happened. So this uh, cable to headquarters, sort of common when this kind of thing happened, said, you know, I was just confronted by this guy. I got this package. I looked inside. He wants to talk to us. What should I do? Now, at this time, the CIA was terribly afraid of a trap. Uh They were always fearful the KGB was going to try and trap them on the streets of Moscow with something. And essentially, a trap like this with a a guy giving you a package is called a dangle. I don't need to explain that, right? So, on the other hand, Bob Fulton was a really experienced intelligence officer. Served in Korea. This, uh, he's already been in Moscow a while. He really knew his stuff, and he had a pretty good intuition. And he had a funny feeling about this guy um, that this wasn't a dangle. So in Tolkachev's note, he said, look, if you would like to cooperate with me, go park your car uh, on a certain street in front of a store, back your car in, leave the lights on. He gave all these sort of uh-huh. conditions. And while uh, Fulton sent it off, to CIA headquarters um, waiting for their answer about whether he should do it. He just decided, you know, I'm going to go do it. So he went out there, parked his car like it was said, backed it in, you know, um, followed all the instructions, walked around by this. Nobody was there. Okachov didn't show. He saw nothing. Came back to the CIA station again. And there was the answer from CIA headquarters. And it said, don't do it. Well, he had already done it. And, you know, this uh, brief moment sort of suggests that if you were a CIA station chief, an officer, a case officer in the field, you oftentimes did have to go by your gut, by your instinct. You had to make your own decisions, although headquarters was always on you. You know, they were always trying to micromanage things. But um, in this particular case, uh, Fulton followed their advice Tolkachev made four more approaches in the following months, repeatedly trying to get Fulton's attention and, you know, trying to hand him things. And finally, he got so mad on the fourth one, it was, I think, by that time, it was spring or summer. uh, Tolkachev actually came up to him, and when Fulton wouldn't take it, he started banging on the hood of Fulton's car just to make a racket. It was so frustrating, right? Anyway, time went by, time changed, and as readers will tell in the book that um, over time, the CIA then uh, changed its opinion. And by 1979, by January of 1979, um, the decision was made to check out this guy and see if he could be a real agent. Yeah. Remember, the agent is the spy. The officer is the CIA employee who runs them, in this case, a case officer. Mm-hmm. So the CIA had organized... Uh, method to contact Tolkachev using a secret writing letter sent from someplace in Europe. The the first meeting was set. It was New Year's Day, 1979. And, 
you know, this was a particularly good day to, to be a case officer on the street because all the KGB guys were hung over and it was also <laughs> freezing cold. So it was not likely they were going to be surging around on the streets on that day. It was probably the day of least presence of the whole year. Yeah. Right. So the man chosen to uh, be the uh, case officer in this particular case, uh, I'm going to give you his picture now. His name was um, John Gilsher. And uh, John Gilsher was a really distinguished fellow with white hair, prematurely white. Uh, people always said he, he looked like a president. This guy was very, very, uh, you know, really with it. He spoke excellent Russian. His parents were immigrants. He'd grown up in New York. But, you know, from birth, uh, uh, he had a little bit of Russia in him. And so he was picked to be Tolkachev's first case officer and make this first meeting. And one of the reasons was that um, he had never, he was a language officer in the CIA. In other words, he spent most of his career basically listening to secret tapes and translating and doing tasks that required Russian language, of course, which was a big deal in the Cold War. There were a lot of things to do. John had worked on the Berlin Tunnel, and uh, that was a very big operation, if you recall. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this was John Gilsher's first time on the street. The first time he was brought in as a case officer to actually run an agent. And he was the one who was sent out on New Year's Day to uh, meet Tolkachev for the first meeting. And, you know, you had to realize the stakes were really high here because if this guy was a dangle, uh, Gilsher would probably get rolled up and kicked out of the country overnight. Um, on the other hand, if he was going to be a, a really powerful and useful source to CIA, they had to earn his trust. Um, you know, John Gilsher had that sense that you were talking about earlier about nuance and the glint. Mm -hmm. John mm -hmm. Gilsher had that sort of great sixth sense. And so he was, although completely inexperienced uh, being an officer on the street, he was also ideal. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. said that Gilsher could take off his blazer and put on a fur coat and, you know, uh, put on a shopka and go out there on the street. And you, you would, he was a Russian. He'll look comrade. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So in the first meeting, um, one of the, you know, as they're walking across, a, it's kind of like a area, open area in, um, near a metro, deserted, New Year's Day, nobody's out there. Um, the coast was clear for this first discussion. And one of the things that John wanted to ask him, it's this sort of standard question that CIA would ask an agent who's volunteering like this, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, John didn't want to destroy trust, but he sort of had to get an idea. And Tolkachev looked at him and he was kind of vague. And he said, I'm a dissident at heart. He didn't explain a lot more what he really meant about it. But as they began to work together, um, exchanging letters, subsequent meetings, Tolkachev wrote a letter to the CIA that tried to explain a little bit more what was on his mind. You have to remember, he's doing this in secret. His wife doesn't know. Um, he's full of this pent-up sort of bitterness about what's happened. And he wrote in the letter that he felt that Soviet politics, literature, and philosophy had been, quote, enmeshed for a long time in such an impassable, hypocritical demagoguery and ideological empty talk that he couldn't stand it anymore. He said, I don't want to do this because I love America. I want to do this, he said, because I've never seen your country with my own eyes. And to love it unseen, I do not have enough fantasy or romanticism. No, he wanted to betray the Soviet Union out of anger. He told the CIA over and over again, I want to do the maximum damage to the Soviet Union in the shortest period of time. Yeah. So he didn't do it out of love for America. He did it out of anger at the hidden hand, I like to think of it, of the history yes. that had pushed him along, had destroyed Natasha's family, and had destroyed their hopes for a better time. So it was this uh, motive, this is the guy who becomes the billion-dollar spy. Yeah. And because he's now working in the... Now where we are in 79, 1980, 81, Reagan's come to office. He's working in a top secret uh, facility where they make radars for uh, the Soviet Union's 
jet fighters. And I just want to give you a, another uh, slide, if you will. Sure. Um, this particular place was called Phasotron. And as I discovered when I was researching the book, they made the radars for all the modern Soviet fighters and interceptors. And you see here in this magazine, they're sort of boasting of all the great radars that they made. Mm -hmm. That's Adolf Tokachev in 1984. And there's a picture of the building is Phasotron. So Tokachev was in the heart of the place where the uh, military aviation radars were being designed. And, you know, people might ask, well, what's so big a deal about that? Well, if you uh, understand how someone sees and hears, then you can learn how to manipulate what they see and hear. You have an enormous advantage in it. If the Cold War ever turned hot, uh, you'd have an amazing advantage if you knew exactly how to block the radar. So Tolkachev's information, which could be basically blueprints from these radars you see here, could have actually been a, a, a huge factor in the Cold War if it had ever turned hot. And even in the Cold War, you know, getting that kind of intelligence inside the Soviet system would tell the United States not only what the Soviets were doing now, but what they might be doing in 10 years. Yeah. So this whole thing came together. You had Tolkachev's uh, motivations. Now we had the CIA connection. Uh, uh, John Gilsher was a case officer, could work with him. But there was a problem, you know, a big problem, which is you didn't have in a Soviet secret military radar institute, you didn't have a, a Xerox machine. The Xerox <laughs> machine was under lock and key by the KGB. Right? Tolkachev couldn't just very well go to FedEx or Kinko's and say, hey, copy this blueprint for yeah. me. Yeah. So CIA had to think about how to get this stuff out. And, you know, uh, there are lots of debates at headquarters about how to do this because, uh, frankly, this was a, a real challenging situation to be inside of a secret institute like this. It's not something they could get with satellites overhead. This is exactly the kind of intelligence that human sources can provide, you know, stuff in vaults that you don't get any other way. You don't get this by tapping. You don't get this by overhead imagery. You need a human. They had Adolf Tolkachev, but how? So they essentially decided that the way to get this top secret stuff was to take pictures of it. They had to turn to photography. Yeah. But the truth is that in the 60s, the CIA had, uh, even by 62, 63, was just beginning to focus on miniaturization of cameras. And over the years, they built a really sophisticated, world-class, teeny tiny miniature spy camera called the Tropel. And I could talk more about that, but let's just move ahead a little bit. Um, they had these Tropels. They were actually experimental at the time Tolkachev volunteered. And they thought about giving one to him, but then they decided at the beginning not to give it to him because this is their first time. What if he's a dad? Right? They didn't yeah. know, right? Do you give your like Ferrari to a, a you know, a, a guy who's learning how to drive? No. And you don't, yeah. And you still aren't 100% sure because he hasn't provided intelligence yet. You don't know. Is he going to take this? And is this going to turn into a, an intelligence coup for the KGB? Right. They love to have that thing in there. Uh -huh. So um, they first they gave him a little camera called the Molly, which was uh, named after the designer's daughter. It was a little Minox, a modified Minox. It was not their best camera, but they figured, that, you know, if they lost it. And also there was a question of where to take the pictures. Um, the CIA, <clears throat> excuse me, realized that it would be hazardous for Tolkachev to be, because he worked in an open plan, like a draftsman's office, right? Yeah. You know, you couldn't like stand at your, at your board just taking pictures. So Tolkachev came up with a really brilliant idea. It was his idea, which is that, uh, as I mentioned, his apartment tower was a 20-minute walk from the office. And he walked home every day for lunch and had lunch at home and then returned. Um, Natasha didn't come home. She was a little heavier weight. She would take the bus. She didn't like the walk as much. So he would be at home alone for about an hour every day for lunch. And the security at the front gate was so weak, he could put the documents in his coat pocket and walk out. Now, one of the reasons this could happen was this hidden hand of history that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. 
The Soviet system was in such dire crisis by this time, shortages of everything, that people were given long lunch hours, not because they weren't going to have a siesta or, you know, a gourmet meal. They were given long lunch hours so they could go wait in line to buy a loaf of bread. The situation was so bad that lines were everywhere, uh, especially women who worked in these institutes were the ones who did the, the waiting. So it was very common for people to take long lunch hours mostly to get scarce goods, including food. So Tolkachev began to bring the documents home and spread them on the kitchen table. The first pictures with the Molly didn't work very well. Um, I describe it in the book how this happens in some detail. But finally, the CIA decided on the next meeting with Gilsher, look, let's give the guy uh, sort of a standard Pentax camera. The Pentax that they gave him was a 35 millimeter film camera, a single lens reflex, the kind of camera that tourists all over the world had. Millions of these cameras were made. It would not be that unusual for a, a Soviet engineer to have a Japanese camera. My, it wouldn't raise any suspicions if they found it in his house. My mom right? has a my mom has an old Pentax. I remember playing it with it when I was a kid. And and real quick side note for everyone listening, kind of the importance of why he has to take these pictures when the wife isn't home is you have to remember. The wife doesn't want anything resembling her earlier life to happen. She's so right. the husband. She doesn't want to be, she doesn't know he's doing this yet. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the CIA decides to to give uh Tolkachev two of the old of the new Tropel cameras, those teeny tiny ones, and said, These are experimental, try them at home. But meanwhile, for most of the stuff you bring home, here's a Pentax camera, here's some film. The film is super high-resolution uh, film that was developed by Kodak for American spy satellites, but they've cut it and rewound it into spools and boxes that are Soviet. So again, if it was, if it was discovered, it would look like it was just their old crappy film, right? Yeah. But um, they gave him a bunch of film, and they also gave him a clamp. The clamp could go on the back of the kitchen chair and allow the camera to be right above the documents to make good copies. And this became the tool with which Tolkachev basically tried to destroy the Soviet Union. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents were copied on that kitchen table in that first year, year and a half. Um, he'd bring them home every day, snap, 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 take them, put the camera back in a hidey hole. Uh, it was actually in the ceiling of his kitchen. <coughs> his wife was short. Uh, she couldn't know what was going on up in the ceiling there. He'd get back to the Institute, put the papers back in the secret file. Nobody knew. So this went on for quite some time. This stuff became extremely interesting to CIA. They realized that this was a real agent. This was not a dangle. Yeah. And um, finally, uh, you know, most CIA case officers served two years. Um, this is not a long-term thing, right? They rotate them. They go to another place. So Gilsher's tour was up in the Moscow station. And, you know, this had been a pretty tense time. It was a, he had done a spectacularly good job in his first um, assignment as a case officer, but it was time to go. And his last meeting with Tolkachev, um, I think, was uh, in um, summer. Maybe it was like June, July. I don't know. It was sometime in 1980. And the interesting thing about this meeting, you know, was the uh, obviously both of these men are not emotional guys, right? They're very sober and 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 very serious about what's going on here. Um, and I think they both knew that this was going to be their last time. But Tolkachev showed up to Gilsha's surprise in the park outside of Moscow where they were meeting. And again, it's Moscow now. It's warm, um, you know. Uh, the light in Moscow, 10 or 11 a.m., it still isn't dark because it's so north, the northern lights. You know, it, it's, a, it's a magical environment, Moscow, in the summertime. And uh, they're in this park, and nobody notices these two guys walking. But Tolkachev surprisingly showed up with a briefcase, with his work briefcase. You know, it was like a leather briefcase, which is kind of like a sign of, holy, what's going on here? And... Uh, and uh, Tolkachev says, look, I have something for you. And Gilsher only travels around with a basically a Ziploc bag in his coat pocket. It's a tiny little bag, you know, for a couple rolls of film. Tolkachev opens up his briefcase, and inside there, it's filled 
filled with over like uh, 35 millimeter film. And Gilsha realizes that if, you know, if, they, if, if they're caught in the park, done. Yeah. Briefcase film, you know, and, you know, he didn't have time to like have a, you know, a toast to Tokachov or embrace him or discuss what they'd done or anything. I mean, they had to set aside their emotions. Gilsha basically said, thank you, grabbed that suitcase and he ran for the, for the station. Didn't have a chance for a big emotional sure. farewell. Sure. But what I want to tell you is that when that stuff was eventually sent back to Langley and developed, um, it was a gold mine. And there were 179 rolls of 35 millimeter film with top secret documents in that briefcase. So you can see the extraordinary uh, courage of Tolkachev, of a guy like John Gilsha, the first case officer, and what this business of spying is about. Human source intelligence is very important, and John understood it. He made it work. Tolkachev was driven by this bitterness at the system that had so disappointed him. And at some point later on, the guys in the CIA station in, in Moscow said to headquarters, you know, we're really burning the candle at both ends to keep this operation going. How's the stuff? Yeah. Like, are we doing okay? Yeah. And the CIA, uh, which have been developing the stuff, and of course the CIA doesn't keep it. They send it to the Air Force, the Navy, yeah, sure. uh, because it has lots of practical applications. And this particular point, you know, especially the issue of radar and radar jamming was very important. And the Air Force wrote back and said, well, you guys are doing great because that last bunch of stuff that you send us from the suitcase, from the briefcases, you know, this was, uh, maybe they were still processing that stuff. When they sent this note back to CIA, they were still processing. They said, even before we looked in that briefcase, this source has saved the United States government $2 billion in research and development by just alerting us to what the other side was doing. Yeah. So I couldn't call the book the $2 billion spy. <laughs> but that's where I got the idea of the billion-dollar spy. Yeah. And that number represents the savings from the great stuff. And, of course, when they developed all those 179 rolls of film, it was an enormous payoff. And there were even more intelligence bonanzas in there. Um, so that's a little bit uh, the story. But I, I should add as a footnote that the uh, this went on for a long time. I mean, we were only up to 1980 or 81, but it went on for a couple more years. The CIA um, had a shock when the, not only did Tolkachev disappear for a while, but also the security in his institute changed. Where you couldn't just smuggle stuff out, you uh, in your coat. You know, you, they they had a new system where you had to check it out. You had to deposit your uh, building pass mm -hmm. in the slot where the documents were, sign it out. It was much more rigorous. So the CIA decided to, one way that they could um, get around this with Tolkachev, it was actually Tolkachev's idea, I think, was to basically create a fake building pass, to completely copy it. Now, remember, this is before digital, mm -hmm. right? This is back in the analog era, and the CIA tried repeatedly to make a copy of Tolkachev's building pass, which looked like this. And, uh, you know, the effort to copy it was agonizing because those little swirls there you see behind yeah. his signature were very peculiar. Yeah. The color and the copy. And, the see, and every time they would make one, they'd bring it to Tolkachev. Three times he rejected it. He said, it, you know, it's obviously fake. It's not good enough. So on the uh, third time, Tokachev actually took his original building pass and he tore off a corner and said, send that back to your guys. Here's the damn thing. Copy it. <laughs> and the fourth time, they made a perfect replica of it. Unfortunately, uh, it was only usable for a couple months because then the KGB and the, and the Institute changed the security again. And it became harder and harder for Tolkachev to work. And I like uh, to show everybody this uh, portrait of Tolkachev that was um, made by an uh, artist, hangs in the CIA headquarters. This is an oil painting, but I think it's 
historically extremely accurate. And yeah, that's awesome. That's the billion dollar spy. That's awesome. That's that's exactly how I picture it. Yeah, that's that's the image I had in my mind's eye. So now, uh, Tommy, I've used up all your time, but please, no, you want to ask me some questions? No, or something? no, no, no. That was awesome, man. That was. Uh, I hate when I have a guest that I have to pull their teeth. That was. This is my favorite kind where I just get to sit back and I'm like, I've, I've said this before. Sometimes I forget I'm doing a podcast because I'll sit back and the author is just going in, and I'm like, and I'm getting this one on one that people would pay for, and I just get to sit here and listen. No, it's it's brilliant, and I and I love the kind of. I think the important points are to go to are. Um, well, one, when you find the motive, right? It's it's one thing if, uh, so I've, I've had on this podcast a million times, uh, some guys from Delta Force, and uh, they talk about, they talk about when they're working with, or in, they were, they were also in the CIA, the Special Activities Division, um, when they're working with people in foreign nations, they're like, you know, when you want a guy that wants money, sure, if that's the only thing you can use, then you have to use them but there's only so much they'll do and they're only going to be so committed because money's great, but ultimately they're scared. They're scared shitless. When you yeah, find the Kokachev wanted money, Tommy, you know, well, yeah, I know, he I know that. got a lot of money. I know that. The there was nothing to spend it on. Yeah. This, yeah. You know, if people were outside waiting in line on their lunch hour to buy a loaf of bread, giving the guy money wasn't going to help change that. But what I wanted to say is there's another aspect to it. He did. He got a ton of rubles and he always wanted more. And, but, the different aspect of I want to damage the system, that hidden hand that you talk about. There's something like the Delta Force guys talk about when you find a guy that doesn't just want money, but he's just like, I hate this terrorist organization. When you find that, that is an organic motive. And that's a level of uh, that's a well of energy and motivation that you're going to get from these guys that no amount of money can give you. So when you have him going, I'm just burnt out with this system. I want to bring it down. That is a, you know, this is dangerous. He's like, sir, everything is dangerous. And, you know, they don't care. They're just like, let's bring this down to its knees. I think that's so important. Then, of course, obviously, you have things that, like, you can't just look through the building with a satellite. You need an inside man. And you got this guy who's going above and beyond. It's not, you know, can you get us a couple more pictures? It's him showing up with a briefcase and everything. And he's like, take it all. Do it all. You have these levels of guys that I think kind of comes back to what you said at the beginning. The, the fighting in the in the back alleys you have to sort of have your feelers out it's almost like you're a blind man you have your feelers out and you have to find these guys and sometimes they find you they come up and bang on the hood of your car but when you get them i mean man it's like it's like making an electrical connection all of a sudden it's like lightning goes through it and you can just get this as you said the billion dollar spy the look down shoot down radar can change the whole dynamic of things and it's I mean, I it, I think it's just absolutely fascinating, and I love reading about this stuff because it gets my mind spinning wildly. Especially, what was it in the last couple months? The who's the defector from the communist Chinese Communist Party? Apparently, defected to the DIA with a couple terabytes. It was in the news. In the news briefly back in like July or August. Um, I don't believe it. I think it was made up. It's, pr- it's probably BS, but <laughs> it's it, it all it, it's all smoke and mirrors. Point is, is it's interesting to read things like the billion dollar spy and at the very least imagine what is going on today. That's what I, you know, you asked about the concrete things. People might wonder like, did this really change the outcome of the cold war in any way? Um, And, you know, Tonkochov gave us basically a roadmap for compromising and defeating two critical Soviet systems. Mm -hmm. One was the radars on the ground, that this huge country was going to use to defend itself and its enormous borders, and the radars on the warplanes that it was going to use to fight if the Cold War ever became hot. And as I point out in an appendix in the book, which I wrote uh, entirely on my own reporting, not with any help from any CIA sources, um, there was a a really big breakthrough in the Tolkachov material because it showed us the code that this... Soviet AWACS were using to communicate. Yeah. So if we could, you know, by cracking that code in any air battle, we would know not only 
uh, what we were saying to our guys, but what they were saying to theirs. And then we could jam theirs and basically create a stealth or an invisibility of our planes. And so it would have given us enormous air dominance and it paid off later as we see in, in the Persian Gulf War. I was going to say the epilogue of your book is one of the better epilogues because it really goes in and it's, you know, there's kind of these weird meta themes of, you know, did we do enough CIA writing back and going, Hey guys, are, are we doing something good? You know? And then it's, well, did it change the cold war? And it's like, well, the cold war never went hot, but you know, if you want peace, you prepare for war. So, I mean, Cheyenne mountain never had to survive a nuclear hit, but it, you build it to survive a nuclear hit. Our nuclear subs never had to surface and carpet bomb the Soviet union but you have it there so it doesn't have to and you kind of have these themes about you know so what did it do and okay well persian gulf war and is that really the same but your epilogue goes in and kind of explains now what did this guy do was it all for naught and you explain with the dogfight just exactly how no this this isn't all just you know cloak and dagger and you know file here james jesus angleton stuff no it comes down to when the rubber hits the road with actual dogfights with planes made of metal and sensors, it comes down to a kill. It comes down to, right. Uh, you're saying the statistics from Korea to Vietnam up to, and then 48 to zero. I mean, those statistics, I mean, that is real world change. That's not just, Oh, we got this idea and that idea and we've got a guy in there down to the very real thing. And to me, it's, uh, uh, that's why I love the epilogue is it is, it's much like that oil painting hanging in the in the CIA is, uh, you know, it's just I didn't know that. That's just such a cool uh, sign of respect to CK Sphere. But what you showed in your book in the epilogue is actually very much so just how real it is. And to me, I just think it's I just think it's so wildly fascinating that it's it's it does work. The finding the intelligence sources does work. The sacrifice was not for nothing. This guy wanted to weak the the weaken the 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 excuse me the Soviet Union, and he did it beautifully. And you know, look down, shoot down radar, and then right the B one B Lancers, right? They're going to fly close to the deck when they went into you know Lemay Strategic Air Command, and they're going to go hit those targets. Think think uh, Doctor Strangelove, right? Come down real low, and it's they're flying right above the surface. There was a very real effect from this, and that's what I think is so cool. It's not just, it's not just. Spit. Here's a weird analogy. I know with Google, I don't know if it's still the case, but back in the late 2000s, apparently, like, apparently, like a couple hours of each day or a couple hours of each week, they were told to stop working on their projects and purely work on passion projects. And some crazy percentage of those passion projects turned in to major Google and I think Google Docs was one of them. Um, I want to say Google Photos or like the sharing of photos, but a lot of their huge things actually came from, hey, go brainstorm. So it wasn't just this idea. It wasn't this, this, I don't know, this romantic idea of, you know, our creative guys go to work. No, really. I mean, sit around, play with what you want to play with. Let's see where it comes up from the heart, from a natural place. Again, reflecting the whole, I want to bring the, uh, the Soviet Union down. What things are you actually passionate about? And from them, they picked these and actually turned them into billion-dollar subsets of Google. So I know I'm ranting now, but I, I, I really do love your book, man. And it's, 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 I'm glad you like it. It, it, I think it's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but I've been in heaven just sitting here listening to you talk about this. Great. Well, I'm glad people, and I'll give them one more peek of the cover. Oh, please do. You can get it on Amazon still in paperback. Or an audible, and you know, uh, have another book next year. Can I get a, any sneak peek on that, or are you keeping it quiet? Cuba, Cuba. Oh. Mr. David Hoffman, and and okay. you don't have to answer right now. I would still love to get you on here to talk about Dead Hand. Okay, when we get some time. Oh yeah, no rush, no rush. You take your time. Yeah. I would love to get you on for that, sir. Thank you so much for coming on here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. 
guys, get the book. It's legitimately a fascinating listen. You, I push books on here all the time, but I want everyone to remember that this podcast is a one-man operation. I only have on authors that I want to talk to. I don't have a board of directors on my podcast saying, we really think you should get Mr. Hoffman. I go through, I find authors I want to get, and in Mr. Hoffman's case, I will wait a, I will wait a year to get you on. I think it was last November I emailed you, and you said, Tommy, really busy right now, maybe next year. And I waited one year to the day and emailed you. And I was like, Mr. Hoffman, I'm following right. up. So that was awesome. Mr. Hoffman, thank you so much, sir. I will email these when they, I will email when they're uploaded. Thank you so much, guys. Please go grab the book. Can't wait to talk to you again. And again, really such an incredible book. I highly, highly recommend it. Everything you see in the movies is real. Mr. Hoffman. People who want to communicate with me, uh, there's a website. It's davidehoffman.com. That's one word, davidehoffman.com. There's a contact sheet there. People can write to me there. They can learn more about the book. There's a small trailer there, and I, I do answer my email. Yes, yes, you do. I can say that from experience. You do. I will okay. put that website in the description. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. All right. God Take bless. Care, everybody. Thank you, sir. Recording Goodbye. stopped.